My name is uh, Rune Janne. I'm a historian of religion, PhD from Uppsala. And in this video, uh, I will argue for a pagan, or at least animist, cultural background to the Christmas tree. Recently, I saw a video made by the outstanding YouTuber Dr. Andrew Mark Henry, whose very well-communicated and prolific channel, Religion for Breakfast, made the claim that there's nothing pagan about the Christmas tree. So here comes your friendly neighborhood save the pagan ownership, dude, if that's even a thing. And I'm going to make the case in this video for a pagan association to the Christmas tree, despite the historically recent date of the dissemina dissemination, the spread of this modern practice of using, using Christmas trees. There are a number of good reasons to assume some sort of pagan connection, and I'll get back to why that is. So there's this thing at the moment of what is pagan and what is not pagan about Christmas. And many scholars seem particularly delighted when they can tell pagans that they are wrong in claiming this or that cultural element. And the pagans probably are sometimes totally wrong. There certainly are some rather silly stories out there, like Santa Claus being really some Siberian, shamanic, flipping, hallucinogenic mushroom thing, and so on and so forth. But I often think that the blank rejection of a pagan or animist background to current cultural motifs seems a bit too easy. So I kind of like to take a bit of a devil's advocate position here and root for a pagan connection. Because animism, which is my preferred frame of understanding, is a very transformational thing. And you regularly see new forms reinventing or expressing much older motifs even morphing into Christian idioms. But I suggest that you check out uh, some of my different videos where I'm clarifying my scholarly analytical background. My background for raising this particular perspective is my general work on North European seasonal animism. And you can find my book on seasonal animism and the Nordic animist wall calendar uh, on my web shop. It can be ordered. So. I totally recommend that you go see the, the, the video about the Christmas tree on the Religion for Breakfast channel. It's very well communicated, informative, and as far as I can see, super well researched. But there's one little but vital omission in Dr. Henry's presentation of the Christmas tree history. An omission that would lead to a very different conclusion. He mentioned, but then moves on from, one really important observation that Christmas trees are closely related to maypoles. Maypoles. So like myself, um, Henry is a scholar of religious studies. Uh, his research focuses on early Christianity and late Ro Roman religion. And I'll just sum up the argument that he builds 
from the reading that he has done on the history of the Christmas tree. Right. The Christmas tree is first documented in the Rheinland region in Germany and present-day France. In the Middle Ages, where they appear as Christmas trees proper in this region during the 15th century, possibly inspired by Christian paradise plays. And from there, the practice starts spreading throughout Europe. The idea that Christmas trees have pagan roots is, according to Dr. Henry, mainly rooted in some evil-ass German blood and soil nationalism from the 19th century. And that's a difficult one to trump, because most emotionally mature people don't particularly want to be seen doing anything that Nazis are also doing. I, for instance, was completely horrified recently because I became aware that I had mentioned in passing a marginal ceremonial practice without being aware that it had been intensively mined by Nazis. So I just mentioned it as a practice without immediately screaming into your face, Nazi alarm! But whatever German nationalists have been fantasizing about concerning Christmas trees, that still shouldn't really affect our reading of some of the folklore that seem related to this practice. Cool, so the historic details of the presentation on religion for breakfast seem solid, but he bypasses the Maypole Association a bit too smoothly. There is substantial material on this in Scandinavia. He and the scholars that he's familiar with thereby misses very telling indications on the roots and origins of the Christmas tree. And it's quite simply possible that uh, these scholars basically don't read Scandishmovian, for which you totally can't blame them. But that is the material that I'll go into here a bit, and thereby perhaps complement the image that Henry draws up in order to reach the point that there is no evidence to link the Christmas tree to pre-Christian practices, and that Christmas trees seem to have emerged from an obscure background in German Christian communities in the Middle Ages. This is strictly speaking correct. There's no evidence. But the thing is that asking for evidence is actually often a bit of a tall order when we talk about the origins of elements in North European folklore. There are indications, indications, evidence, indications, indications strong enough that I think they do outline a somewhat different image. So the Maypole origin is spot on. In fact, it's rather more spot on than it would seem from Henry's video, uh, because it shows that the Christmas tree is a manifestation of a much, much wider cultural practice that has very diverse, yet also very consistently related forms, at least in Scandinavia, forms that are indeed well, they're certainly animist, but more than just that, you know, because animist practices can basically play out in a Christian idiom. I would say that they also appear very heathen to my eyes, at least. Um, they're associated with a conceptual and ceremonial matrix, which is so old that you can see it represented on flippant Bronze Age rock carvings. And if you want to understand something like the Christmas tree practice, then I think that this cultural matrix that it probably springs from should be included. We shouldn't only look at it in isolation as that one specific practice, bringing a spruce tree into the house, decorating it with candy and candles. We should also consider the general role that adorned poles, trees, 
leafy branches and staffs play in North European folklore. And there is a lot of that. Bringing leafy branches or leaves into communities, into houses, adorning people with them, May kings, May queens, brides, midsummer brides, Lucia brides, adorned with foliage. There's raising of adorned poles, sticking branches into the ground in winter in order to invoke spring, putting juniper branches into fields in order to protect them, taking birch branches into houses for carnival ritual, raising poles with wreaths for May Day and Midsummer, raising these ceremonial poles also for newly built houses or when people are getting married. In fact, it seems that raising adorned poles looks like a general ceremonial model that brings some sort of blessing. Often dancing around them, by the way, like Scandinavians still do with Christmas trees. Here's some dancing around the Christmas tree from my children's kindergarten. Now, I think that the general prevalence of all these poles, branches and trees is most likely a heathen originating thing because you find it as a major motif cluster in pre-Christian religion. You find trees or sticks functioning as idols, something that you also find in later times with both maypoles and Christmas poles. Uh, they have sometimes been given anthropomorph shape, a characteristically North European tradition of um, personifying the season or the holiday that I spoke of in one of my older videos where I defended the outlandishly pagan character of Santa Claus actually is so trying to sustain an association with Odin. <laughs> but anyway, back to heathen sticks and, and staffs that have totally functioned as ritual tools, divinatory tools, throwing sticks into water to find a place to settle, poles of buildings, high seat pillars, charged with animacy, sticks as beings, gander a word that uh, both means stick and a spirit. Religious experts as wand bearers, the word völva, a female shaman, is possibly derived from völer, a stick. So trees continue to be sacralized intensely down through the ages. In fact, it's a core tenet of uh, Nordic animism. Um, I think rooted partly in it, the idea of I'm gonna say it, I'm gonna say it, Yggdrasil. The idea of the interconnected cosmos as a tree. And I'm not saying that Christmas trees at any point in history, before perhaps very recent neo-paganism, have been seen as images of, <clears throat> images of Yggdrasil. But the interconnectedness of cosmos as a tree is just a really important element in the pre-Christian North European religiosity. And that is a conceptual foundation for religiosity with this enormous focus on trees, branches, poles, and so on. And that seems to be the same in much later folkloric animist practices through the Christian age. Loads of sticks and trees and branches, particularly around Christmas. So as Henry points out, the Christmas tree proper as an isolated practice of bringing a whole spruce into the house for Christmas is a fairly recent import in most places. In the mid-19th century, most Scandinavians didn't have contemporary Christmas trees. But, oh boy, did they have a lot 
of other sticky, staffy, sprucey, branchy things going on. And as it is often the case with Yule Christmas traditions, we sh shall now go to the land of eternal Yule, the real place where the streets are actually paved with cinnamon pastry, and where cheeks are always rosy, and where farts smell of clothes, and where always mistletoe hanging above hot, hot chicks, where cutie cuddly people are always smiling and giving each other presents wearing kitschy sweaters, the land with the richest and most powerful Yule traditions, Sweden. No, not that Sweden. This Sweden. Thank you. In Sweden, there's a good documentation of the Yule poles that were in use before the spread of the current Christmas tree that we could here call the German Christmas tree, the one that we all know. Here is one case, which is a pre-Christmas pre tree Yule pole. And though this shape might be already uh, influenced by the spread of the modern German Christmas tree, it's just an example, because Yule pole traditions were very varied. In Western Jutland, a branch of wild apple was brought in and saved for Christmas. It was then placed in the main room with apples on the branch, right? It could stand on the floor or perhaps on the table if it wasn't so big. Sometimes people would create such a pole but with sticks and place apples on them. And this practice may be related to a tradition of leaving some apples on the fruit trees for Freya to take them around Christmas. There is a case of taking an entire spruce tree in, dressing it as a person and dancing with it and people would decorate rooms with spruce and juniper, uh, a bit like they would do with beech leaves in spring. Juniper is particularly interesting here because it was, it, was, it was thought to have a bit of a sanctifying and purifying nature. So sometimes you find these Christmas tree looking practices that seem to be not Christmas trees, yet too similar to overlook the similarity. For instance, carrying into a Christmas celebration a burning Christmas bush, a spruce with candles and glittery paper on it so it would be shining. And this was carried while singing a very specific hymn. This particular practice seems to have been also used at weddings as a way of blessing a couple. Uh, or a practice from Norway where people would actually dig up a small live rowan tree and plant it inside the house, perhaps in a dirt floor, and then letting the heat from the house make it sprout and then take omens of the coming year from that sprouting. Uh, again, definitely not our kind of Christmas tree, but very much a kind of Christmas tree. The Swedish folklorist Hilding Selander in his book on Yule traditions talk about, you know, all the stuff that was there before the Christmas trees. Uh, the different Yule pole devices could be called stuff like Yule Stalker, Yule Stinger, Yule Poles, Yule Kors, Yule Crosses, Yule Gronar, Yule Spruces, Yule Bushes, Yule Tufts, Yule Ruskar in Swedish. 
characteristically, these Yule poles were raised outside of the house. And in some cases, it was just a spruce tree without any adornment, which would obviously make us think of our normal Christmas tree. And in some cases, you know, an influence probably can't be ruled out. But Zelander has a fairly clear distinction between the different Yule poles and the new Christmas tree, which was a fairly recent arrival in his day. Particularly interesting is the Yule tuft or Yule ruska, which originally was a spruce tree that you stripped of bark except from the green part in the top, the tuft, right? And in some areas, these Yule tufts were the sign that was raised outside every farm to signal that now the Yule holiday was opened. A community leader, an alderman, would blow a horn and solemnly declare which farm would first raise the Yule tuft. Uh, And then the farms would raise them one after the other. And this was understood as the quintessential sign of the holiday, Yule Teknet, the Yule sign. And when it was raised, it signaled the Yule Fried, the Yule Peace, was declared with this uh, Yule pole or Christmas pole. Sometimes runic calendars represent these uh, Yule tufts as the sign of Yule, which, by the way, doesn't necessarily signal, signal that it's particularly old nor particularly pagan, but certainly preceding the spread of the uh, German Christmas tree, uh, which happened in the 19th century through the, the gentry class. And you can read more about runic calendars in my work on Nordic seasonal animism. But Yule poles with spruce or fir are attested as only as the uh, as early as the 17th century, also attested in the 18th century, and Selander believes that this was an ancient ritual. This debarked spruce tree, a white pole with a green spruce in the top, was explained by some elders as as the trunk of the spruce symbolizing the harvest of the last year, and the green top was the coming year's harvest. And that obviously made the green top important. So people would have the idea that uh, the farm with the tallest Yule tuft would get the best harvest. Or perhaps uh, the top would be cut off and saved for, uh, to, in order to save the crops, perhaps during sowing. The material isn't quite clear in these practices. But people would sometimes steal these green tufts from each other in order to basically steal each other's harvest luck. Or wild hunt enactors like Staffan's riders uh, would take them when they were passing between the farms if a farm didn't serve them well and then bring it to another farm. People would sometimes actually hold on to them, protect them, take these Yule signs inside in order to prevent them from being stolen. So these were powerful things and there were all kinds of practices around when or when not to take them down again. In some places, uh, they would light lights in them. Again, this is definitely a kind of Christmas tree that is rather different from our kind of Christmas tree, but definitely a kind, right? Notice also the urgency and importance of this practice. Um, And in fine accordance with heathen Yule practices, the Yule tufts, Uh, poles, they could be left standing until the last of the Yule beer was drunk. And in Old Norse, Yule, 
it, it, this holiday is not something you celebrate. It's something you drink. Celebrating Yule is called Dreka Yule, um, uh, drinking Yule. And there's this underlying idea that the Yule is inside the beer. It's identified with the beer. And you can check my playlist on beer. So community leaders like aldermen would keep an eye out if somebody got lazy and left those Yule poles standing after the holiday was drunk. And such forgetfulness around the Yule poles could incur penalties such as fines. And there were different traditions. In some places they, they would left, let them stand, basically, and until midsummer, perhaps. So Yule Ruskar are actually sometimes made in Sweden still, but it appears that they have uh, a different form today. This is their contemporary form that you see here, not this debarked spruce tree. Maples uh, have historically also been made in exactly that way, as a debarked spruce tree with a green top. Also wedding poles, bride poles raised at a wedding to bless a married, married couple. Rowan uh, was also used in relation to May, like we saw it in, in Norway. So uh, Hilding Silander, he uh, notes that there seems to be a general theme of fertility going on here. Also protection against bad magic is very characteristic of these animist uh, agrarian culture. Uh, and you see these Yule poles sometimes bending into Christian symbolism, where you have these very beautifully shaped Yule crosses, still sometimes made with green spruce uh, branches and so on, uh, adorned sometimes with dolls or little boats for some reason. Maypoles uh, were often also used to mark midsummer, by the way, still called maypoles though, and that indicates uh, Yule poles as one of the examples of a mirroring practice between midsummer and, uh, and the Yule period. The, the time with the most and the time with the least light during the day. And this is something you regularly see in Nordic folklore, that there's a mirroring between Yule and uh, midsummer. One particular practice that often combines with Yule poles is the Yule sheaf. Typically a last sheaf from the preceding harvest, which is offered up to the wild hunt or to little people or other spirit beings, an offering for a good harvest in the coming year. And people would take omens from how well the birds would feed on these Yule sheaves that would typically be placed on the Yule poles, placed on top of them or the like. And in spite of the fact that all these practices are historically later than these very early documentations of our contemporary German-style Christmas tree, there is still no way that you can make me believe that this rich Nordic tradition of Christmas poles is just a derivation of the German Christmas tree. Uh, that would imply that the German Christmas tree arrived, inspired an explosion of same yet different practices, but then disappeared and then came again later in order to then replace this rich and varied Yule Pole tradition. No way, dude. You know, it's, it's not a good explanation. Hilding Silander, writing in the early 20th century, he doesn't even consider it. To him, it was absolutely evident that there's this set of traditional practices that are at some point replaced by the very similar practice of our contemporary Christmas tree. He has probably seen this play out in his whole own lifetime. Communities that uh, used a lot of 
Christmas poles and then started going into German-style Christmas trees. So the Yule poles in Sweden are a tradition with great variation. We have very diverse, often communal practices, Christmas tree traditions that are both similar yet different from our contemporary German Christmas trees. Placed outside farms as a sign of Yule, remarkably aligned with heathen Yule symbolism such as the beer, the agrarian fertility, offerings to spirit beings, and the peace, actually, Frith, is a core concept uh, of blessing in the heathen conceptual world, often associated with specific times of year, also harvest, by the way. Um, what I think that we basically have is a ceremonial model centered on raising adorned poles with green foliage, in which, which in winter is typically spruce or fir, right? And considering this Nordic material, I think that the most likely background to the German tradition is that these German farmers in the Rhineland, which went to the forest for spruce in the 14th century, they probably had something similar going on. We'll probably never know exactly what, but there is a good chance that they went to the forest for fur because they had some folkloric practices of sorts that probably wouldn't have felt completely weird in the company of all this Nordic folklore. There was also a kind of urgency around this, like we sense in the Swedish material. It wasn't just a pretty adornment. According to Henry's video, uh, you know, authorities basically had to guard the forests in some of these areas because people would just take it in spite of the fact that there was legislated against it. That such a practice could enter into synergy with Christ stuff like Christian Paradise Place, totally, totally possible. Christian motifs are deeply mixed in with animist practices in Northern Europe. But somehow the Christmas tree flowed out of all that and became popular. And that happening is not essentially different from what we're seeing today with American Halloween spreading in Europe. A new form from somewhere else becomes popular. But part of the reason that it does become popular is that it aligns very, very well with existing forms. In the case of Halloween, existing or very recent All Hallows traditions. And in the case of the Christmas tree, its spread and success probably relies with its alignment and rootedness in these strong and deeply rooted cultural practices around adorned poles, branches, and particularly spruce around Christmas. And by the way, check out this t-shirt here. It's the old school Yule metal Christmas t-shirt you can find in my web shop. So does this necessarily warrant stamping the whole thing as pagan. And I know that I kind of clickbaited that to you a little bit, and but perhaps I made a little bit of too big of a promise there. It's actually a little bit more complicated. You know, the reason is that these labels like pagan or not pagan or Christian that we really want to squeeze onto a particular practice, they sort of rest on this contemporary Eurocentric notion of the belief system, which is thought of as this monolithic functionalist whole, as if paganism or Christianity 
were coherent machineries where all the different conceptual and practice elements are working together like parts in a machine. So if you plug out one element like the Christmas tree, then that is defined by the whole and therefore it makes sense to label it as sort of inherently pagan or not pagan. It's not a particularly precise way of looking at things. Culture is messy, is a hodgepodge of motifs, and a cultural element such as the Christmas tree is defined primarily by how we engage it. In the family where I grew up, there were angels on the Christmas tree and a star in the top symbolizing the star of Bethlehem. In, in my parents' place, the dancing around the Christmas tree have even become the sort of drowsy walking around it while singing these rather poetic Christian hymns. My French wife, she was kind of flabbergasted the first time she was exposed to this folkloric exotica, right? As a high school student, I once put a golden hammer and sigle symbol on top of a, the high school Christmas tree because we thought it was fun. And this year, my eight-year-old daughter made, and I think I can only describe this as a burlesque purple furry heart shape on the top of the Christmas tree, which I absolutely adore and recommend. The point just being that a Christmas tree being pagan or Christian, that is a function of how you ritually engage it. And this is part of the reason that I prefer the term animism when analyzing uh, culture, because it focuses on that engagement. So if, instead of thinking historically pre-Christian as sort of the criteria for paganism, we instead look for broader animist trends that might well play out in a Christian idiom, if we take such a perspective, then there's zero question in my mind that Christmas trees are recent expressions of very old practices and conceptual schemes that are very characteristic of traditional ways of knowing in Northern Europe. Because Christmas trees have historically been immediately preceded by an abundant, very varied, rather heathen-looking agrarian fertility practice of adorned poles, spruce branches and trees around Christmas. And I think it is fair to say that the Christmas tree is an expression of traditional animist ideas and practices basically, practices that are rooted in the idea of trees as a core cosmological motif, which does date back to the heathen world tree ideas, such as the Yggdrasil, and which is somewhere in the background of all that much more recent folkloric practice, where raising adorned poles with leaves or spruce foliage, foliage was a general practice of blessing, protecting fields, houses, farms, people. Our current Christmas tree practice, you know, it's just what you might call the latest fashion within this uh, ancient animist practice. So looking at the folklore, I think that seeing a contemporary Christmas tree as an image of Yggdrasil is in no way more far-fetched than seeing it as a biblical tree of knowledge uh, because it may have had some theoretically interface with marginal medieval practices of paradise place. So if you want to engage your Christmas tree as a pagan and an or as an animist symbol, then you should go ahead, you know. And if somebody wants to tell you that there's no historical basis for doing this, then refer them to this video.
You know, you have at least as much historical reason to do that as to understand the Christmas tree as something Christian. Thank you very much for listening and see you around. The Nordic Animism Channel is run by me, Dr. Rune Jana Rasmussen. I'm a cultural researcher, historian of religion. I'm educated from Uppsala and Copenhagen universities. And on this channel, I strive to popularize my research and initiatives on recovering North European traditional animist knowledge of land connectedness and kinship with the other than human world. And I try to make this overlooked part of our cultural history available for contemporary popular culture, self-image, spirituality and eco-activism.